Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Mary Fraser Mainz, Executive Director of Youth Emergency Services serving Metropolitan Omaha. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. A leading advocate for at-risk children and youth in Nebraska, Mary Fraser Mainz is the Executive Director of Youth Emergency Services. Mainz has served in leadership roles with Utah Holly Girls Village and the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services. Her 35 years of experience in the world of child welfare and juvenile justice provide a good basis of knowledge in working with the at-risk and homeless populations served by Youth Emergency Services. Mainz was a member of the Governor's Commission on Children in 2003, is a former president of the Nebraska Association of Homes and Services for Children, and served on the Douglas County Treatment Team. Mainz was the president of Omaha and Nebraska Business and Professional Women's Organization, focusing on improving the conditions of women in the workplace, advocating on issues such as equal pay for women and access to affordable health care. Mary Fraser Mainz is married to Ray, a videographer and producer, recently retired from the World Herald, and is an active member of Countryside Community Church. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So could you tell us more about the origins of Youth Emergency Services? Youth Emergency Services has been around a long time. They started over 45 years ago. In 1974, a group of volunteers saw young people hanging out in the old market, and they realized they didn't have a place to live. And so they opened up their homes and allowed youth to live in their own homes. Well, that didn't work out so great. And one day they found that the youth painted their kitchen cupboards green. So they decided to buy a house. And one of our founding members got the newspaper out and looked for a house. And they put their money together and spent their own money on a mortgage for a house, for a shelter for young people. They've grown. They paid off the mortgage. And we've grown and grown and expanded the services and the number of youth we serve over the years. But it's pretty exciting when you think of this volunteer group who put their own money. That was their mission, their passion. And some of them are still on our our board of trustees. This is such a great story, though, especially the kitchens being painted green. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So so tell us more about what uh, Youth Emergency Services does today. So today, Youth Emergency Services has a continuum of services. We started out as just a shelter, but then you realize that there's youth who need lots of different services. So we base our model on the National Network for Youth, and they have the best practices for working with youth experiencing homelessness. So that's who we hone in on. That's our mission, and that's all we do, is provide critically needed resources to empower youth experiencing homelessness and near homelessness to become self-sufficient. So then you look at what is it those youth need to be successful. So first you need prevention. And we have a prevention program. We have a street outreach center where youth go, our staff go out on the street and find youth. And I'll talk about how COVID has impacted that in a little bit. But the street outreach center is open and we invite youth to come to the street outreach center 
And during normal times, we're open four hours a day, Monday through Friday and Saturday morning, two hours. And they can come there and get a hot shower. Think about living on the street. If you're on the street, where are you going to sh shower? We're going to wash your hands during COVID. Where are you going to wash your clothes? So they can do that. They can use a computer. They can do job applications. They can see a nurse or a therapist. They can get their IDs. If you're a youth leaving home, you don't think to take your ID or you may not even have it, or they don't have a usually, usually have a driver's license. So we get them their IDs. That'll help them with jobs. It'll help them with getting an apartment, many, many things that open doors with an ID. They can have a hot meal. Anytime we're open, we have a hot meal that's donated by members of the community. And they can get a pantry bag and hygiene items and clothes and shoes and coats, all those basic needs. So we meet their basic needs and help them move further into self-sufficiency at the Street Outreach Center. When you say youth, before we start thinking a little more personally about who, who these kids are, um, what sort of age range uh, are you talking about? There's different ranges for different programs. At the Street Outreach Center, we see, see youth as young as 12 and as old as 22. And then we have an alumni night for those youth who've, done, who've gone through our program and who still need some help, but we don't want them to be interacting with the younger people as much. So we have an alumni night. But those 12-year-olds are usually cousins or brothers. If there's a 12-year-old who's homeless, we call Child Protective Services and Law Enforcement. But they're usually tagging along with their older siblings. They don't have to be literally homeless to come to the Street Outreach Center. We want to prevent homelessness there. And so they can come in and they have to sign in with their name and their um, hopefully their zip code and their age. And then we give them services and we keep track of that. So last year ended in June of 2019, we served almost 2,800 youth at the street outreach center. Horrifying to think uh, that there are youth out there that are struggling with these, these issues. You mentioned that you served around 2,800 youth and I grabbed some data from your website. Some of the national data are an estimated 1.6 million youth are homeless each year in the United States. Nearly 50% of homeless youth have been physically or sexually abused. And one in four youth have traded sex for means of survival, such as shelter, food, or clothing. And so, I mean, as horrific as that is um, at a national level, what's, what's the local situation? So when I said 2,800 youth, that's just through the Street Outreach Center. Uh, we were part of a national study that looked at the causes of youth homelessness and the effects of youth homelessness. So we actually know that in Omaha, Nebraska, our metro area, that youth are homeless for a variety of reasons. A lot of them are kicked out of it. They, they would not be out on the street if they didn't feel unsafe. So they're kicked out of their home and at, or asked to leave. Sometimes they're asked to leave because they're LBGTQ and their family won't support them. And, or it's so uncomfortable that they don't feel they can stay there safely. Sometimes they're asked to leave or kicked out because they're pregnant. And that shocks me at this day and age that we have parents who kick out their teenage daughter or 20-year-old daughter when they're pregnant. So pregnancy, um, abuse and neglect, sexual abuse, they're victims of emotional abuse. The other issue is mental health issues by the parents or substance abuse issues by the parents. 
and the youth don't feel safe. So they leave because they don't feel safe. They don't leave because they want to go have fun on the street. It is not fun to be on the street and it is dangerous. And one of the things we've learned, we're part of a group that helps victims of trafficking, that 90% of the young people who leave home are approached by a trafficker within 48 hours of leaving home and 50% go into the life. They get stuck. They have they trade sex or a place to live or for food and they get stuck. They don't intend to do it, but they get in a situation where they somebody has power and control over them and they're no longer able to leave. And that's uh, that's a population that we serve. thinking but hold on this is the 21st century uh, America is the richest country on the planet what is going on what why is this such a, uh, a persistent issue there's systemic issues that we've not addressed as a community and one of the reasons I'm very grateful for you having me on your show is because we've got to talk about this as a society people ignore that there are homeless youth in our community and we've got to talk about it. People need to talk about it with their, their children in school. There are high school students who are sitting next to someone who may be couch surfing. That means they don't have a place that they regularly stay and they live from place to place to place. And they, they may leave in two weeks, they may stay a month, but that's so unstable. And think about how that impacts their relationships, how it impacts ability to go to school, how it impacts their job and their mental health. So those are huge impacts in that developmental stage. Got a 16 to 21 year old, their brains aren't totally developed and they are in survival mode. They are figuring out. So you talk about positives. Here's what I say about these young people. They are resilient. Could you live on the street and survive? They're brave, they're resourceful, and they're so creative and they're fun. They are just so grateful for the services that we provide them. And all of our services are voluntary. So, and I haven't talked about housing yet, but our housing program is voluntary. If they don't want to follow the rules, they can leave. And we have other youth who can come in. But a lot of them, once they get in and start figuring out and get learning skills and getting down the path to self-sufficiency, they are so excited and grateful and they make amazing changes. You mentioned something about needing as a society for us to 
talk about these issues more in a more open way. Why do you think, what, what are the reasons behind a reluctance of society at large to talk about these issues, to surface them? Why, why do we prefer ignorance? I think people need to be aware of it and know more about it. We've got mental health system that does not respond or is not accessible to many, many people, families and youth. I worked in a system that was mental health focused. I worked for the state of Nebraska for 21 years. We're like a safety net. These youth fall through other programs that are set there. So we have young people, I didn't talk about this yet, but some of our youth, 40 some percent at last count, were from the foster care system. They aged out of foster care and didn't have a place to live, or they were in the foster care system because of abuse and neglect, and they didn't age out. They just are no longer able to live at home. And so we've got to address that. We've got the juvenile justice system, and we've got the disproportionate impact on black youth. They are overrepresented in our population that we serve. LBGTQ youth are overrepresented in who we serve. So we've got to look at what are those issues and supports we can provide to families because I believe families want to do well with their children and they want to have the resources and supports to help their family. I am hesitant and reluctant to suggest this. Is there a sense in some parts of society that it's the kid's fault? It's the youth that are to blame and um, in some ways are always going to be bad apples and, and that's what these youth are. Is, is that something, a, a sort of a, a perception that you've encountered? Oh, yes. And our staff will talk about people think these are bad youth. These are youth who were, um, they just wanted to go have some fun and left home. These aren't youth who left home because they want to have fun. They are not bad youth. It is amazing to see what they do and what they can It's fun to watch them graduate from high school. I think we had eight youth who graduated from high school this year. We didn't get to have a good party like we usually do. But congratulations to them to overcome everything that they came through to graduate from high school. We have young people because we serve up to 22 years old, up to 24-year-olds in our trafficking program, who are in college at UNO, at Metro Community College. They want to be independent. They want to be successful members of our society. These aren't bad kids. These are just kids who've had a bad situation and they've responded in a way that they felt would keep them safe. It's easier for us to blame the youth as opposed to blaming ourselves for our inability to um, come to terms with and address the issue. Or to look at what we're doing. Yeah, Mm. it's easier to blame someone else than to look at ourselves.
so where do these kids go once they um, they end up on the street? So they usually, they tell us that they don't spend a whole lot of time st- sleeping on the street because it's scary. One young man told me that he would, he was in the old market and he would walk all night to stay um, safe. And then during the day he would try to sleep next to the building. He'd try to stand sleeping up next to the building because he was afraid. Other young people may sleep under the bridges. They do not want you to find them. They are invisible. So when you drive around, you may not find them. They couch surf, so they may live with a friend's family for a while, or they double up. A lot of them live together. And then there's relationship issues and challenges and too many people in an apartment. Um, They may live with a relative, and that may not be safe for them for very long. But the couch surfing is a big issue. And then um, literally homelessness, homeless is another issue. We call them street dependent kids, those kids who live on the street and fend for themselves and, and they may live with someone for a while and then go back to the street. But they don't stay on the street very long at a time. They right. may live in their cars. I'll tell you the story about a young woman who went to Burke High and the school um, called her in because her grades were going um, downhill. And she had been sleeping in her car because of abuse at home. So she wasn't studying. And they found out that she was sleeping in a car. And she said to me, it wasn't even my own car. She had her friend drive her to Burke High so that she could go to school and graduate from high school. She graduated from high school. and She came into our housing programs. And I haven't seen her for a long time. But the last I knew she was working in town, I used to run into her. Just think about being a high school girl living in a car. How do you get ready for school? How do you do your hair, your makeup, your clothes? How do you take a shower? What do you do if you're a high school kid? If you aren't a professional in the field working in uh, an organization like Youth Emergency Services, what can other people do, whether they're kids or friends or members of the public? What are some of um, the signs that we could be aware of to either have a conversation or to intervene or um, to raise the subject carefully and sensitively if we're worried about a particular uh, situation or particular youth. A lot of our referrals come from schools. We've even had referrals from UNO and Metro Community College of, you know, there's youth at UNO who don't have safe places. And there's a committee now at UNO to work on homelessness and make sure the students have what they need. But if you are a parent of teenagers, your teenagers probably know somebody who's experiencing homelessness. And you can tell that by they don't maybe stay in the same place or the way they talk about their family or maybe how they're um, really closed in and don't talk about their family. A lot of times youth know now a youth isn't going to say I'm homeless. They're not going to say I'm a trafficking victim. Those aren't words that youth use. But they will talk about what's your family situation. So if your parent and your um, child's friend keeps coming over and you think there's a red flag, just ask some careful questions. What's happening? So how are your parents? Or what's happening? Or how's school? And sometimes youth will tell a trusted adult. We get referrals from mentors too. School counselors, school teachers are our biggest referral sources. And right now they're not there. And I know people are worried about the little kids, but we get referrals on those high school kids. What is it that we don't know about them because school's not in session? Is there a story or two that you might be able to share that might illustrate 
the, the journey of one or two youth from kind of the experience they had that led them away from the trauma and then through your services and programs and, and onwards? I'm thinking of several youth, but I will tell you about one young man who lived with his mom, and here's how he described it. The utilities refused to work. The water didn't work. The heat refused to come on. He did not blame his mom. He blamed the utilities. We knew that that meant he had a relationship with his mom that was salvageable, but he left home because he didn't feel safe. And he came and lived in our shelter, and then he went into our housing programs, and the, the staff worked with him and his mom. He graduated from high school, and I sat next to his mom at his graduation party. And he went and lived with his mom for a while. That was amazing to watch that young man blossom, but that relationship be mended, and he was able to reconnect with his mom and his siblings. That's a success. I told you about the young woman who lived in her car. We have a young man who identified as gay, and his family asked him to leave. And he, um, he's the one who walked throughout the old market and leaned against the buildings and uh, slept. And then he came to us, and he did great, and he got a mentor. That mentor connected him with many, many experiences that he wouldn't have known. And he um, got his own apartment and a job. That's what we do. We help them get their own apartments and get jobs. But first we teach them independent living skills. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Mary Fraser Mainz, Executive Director of Youth Emergency Services, serving Metropolitan Omaha. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. They haven't really talked about our other services other than street outreach, so when you're ready for that, I can do that. Um, so do tell us about some of these other services. Yes. So we have the prevention services at the Street Outreach Center, but we also have an emergency shelter. And it's very small, but we can serve four youth, up to six youth at a time in the shelter. We turn away more youth than we're able to serve at the emergency shelter. Those are youth who are not able to be at home. Our average length of stay is 21 days. 
And during that time, they have a staff person who works with them on getting them back into school, looks at what their goals are. It's all youth driven. Everything we do is what the youth wants, because if you tell them what to do, guess what? That's not going to go very far. They need to make their own goals and be motivated for their own life. So the staff work with them on getting their own goals for school and for maybe going back to their family, or is there another family member they can live with? Or if they can't, they can go into our housing programs. So we have the shelter, and then we have the longer-term housing programs where they can live in our houses, and they can stay there up to 18 months. So during that time, they learn how to be an independent adult. They have independent living skills. They learn how to go, how to prepare a grocery list, go to the store, buy the food, make the food, how to serve the food and have friends over. They before COVID. They also learned, they learn how to manage their money, their financial education classes that are provided. They have a mentor. They learn how to do their laundry, how to clean their apartment. Those are things that they didn't learn. Things that you learned as you grew up or when you were in college or, you know, just those everyday independent living skills, we teach them those skills. So we also have maternity group home, which is in Bellevue. And we, because of city code, we can have five moms and five babies. We can't have more than 10 people living in that house at a time. So at our, both our shelter and the maternity group home, we have staff there 24 hours a day awake, working with those youth and helping them. The moms, we teach them to be independent. They get parenting classes. They find their own childcare. They get jobs. And they figure out how to take care of their own child when they're in the house. The staff don't take care of their child. So in both the transitional living program and the maternity group home, the youth pay rent. So the first two months are free, and then they pay starting at $50 going up to $500. And when they leave, this is the best deal in town, they get 80% of that money back. Um, but that's a savings account for them. But one young man just recently left, and he had um, over $3,000. He got a check for over $3,000. And he put it in a savings account and he, or they can use it to furnish their own apartments. We also have this thing called transition in place, which um, a board member calls live where you want to live. So when they're in transitional living, they live in our apartments. When they're in transition in place, they pick their own apartment. They get the rent in their, the lease in their own name. And then we help them for six more months starting at 500 and going down. And then they still get that case management, that still contact. They have to check in with their case manager. And they are amazing. We've had amazing success with that program. It sounds like you get your youth really set up as well as you can for success. And you also mentioned alumni. What is the sustainability of you know, their sense of independence and their ability to be on their own? I only know a little bit and I wish I knew more because it's hard to do long-term studies with this population because they're so mobile. I do know that of the youth who leave our transitional living program and go into the transition in place program, last year we had served 63 youth over the five years we've had that program and three had been evicted. That's remarkable. They can stay there. That's their apartment. It's not ours. It's not you know, you're done now, you have to find another place to live. So that's pretty remarkable. The Street Outreach Center, it's kind of built on wanting them to keep coming back. And as their needs change, they can still come back. So I don't consider the Street Outreach Center alumni a problem at all. And I'll tell you, the other attitude that our staff have is that if a youth leaves 
and they're not ready to leave, it's okay. And if they come back, it's okay. We welcome them back in. It's not seen as a failure. It's seen as where are they in their stage of change. They might not have been ready, or now they are. And they may need to come and go three or four times. When they leave, though, they lose their spot, and they have to go back on the waiting list. You did mention that, of course, the pandemic is affecting us right now, and that is clearly having an impact on all sorts of aspects of how we live our lives. I'm worried to ask you, what are the impacts that you're seeing as regards the uh, people you serve? So there's a variety of impacts, and one is the Street Outreach Center, and that's the only service so far that I've talked about, but the Street Outreach Center is open two hours a day and by appointments. But we are reaching out on social media because we want the youth to know that we are there. We are offering to help them. We do mobile pantry to 25 youth in their homes every week. We take them a hot meal because people are still donating catered meals to us. So we switched from homemade meals to catered meals. And we are grateful for the people who are giving us catered meals because we take go in a van and take that and pantry bags and hygiene items and socks, clothing if they say they need it. But we go take that to their home. And so if they can avoid an eviction or stay at home because we bring them some basic groceries, we're all about that. And then we do social media and chat with the youth and see how they're doing. And we have a therapist that we contract with Lutheran Family Services. And the youth can have an appointment with her and check in with her. And the staff check in with the youth. And if they think there's a problem, they can contact the Lutheran Family Services therapist. And we have a visiting nurse that comes usually comes to the Street Outreach Center, but now is just available for consultation for the staff in all of our programs. We are still there for them. It's just different. And we want them to know that we're there. And that when things open up, come back. So we were serving 50 youth a day, every day. And now we're seeing 10 to 12, maybe 10 average. And we're going to see them in their homes. So we know they're out there. We just, some of them don't even have Facebook or a phone. So we just keep trying to find them. And we ask their friends, how's so-and-so? Where's so-and-so? How can we connect with, with your friend that you were with last time you were here? Being very, our staff is amazingly creative. We have um, a large waiting list for our transitional living program right now, and there's 14 young men on that list, and three might have just been added, and the list is 20. So that's a long, long waiting list for our program. So we're trying to figure out other ways to help get them housed.
I can't talk with you about youth without asking you, what was your childhood like? Who were you and how were you formed? I had a great childhood. I have, I had two wonderful parents. They're both dead now, but I had wonderful parents and I'm the oldest of five and a great childhood. My mission has always been to help young people and families to be successful. Why? You know, where did this calling, this urge, <laughs> motivation, where did that come from? It might have come from my parents and from my faith. It's important to, be, to give back to your community when you have many blessings. It's important to give back to your community. And my parents were great volunteers. My mom was a 4-H leader for 40-some years, long after she had kids in 4-H. My grandmother was a 4-H leader. My parents were leaders in their community in their church. And that's what they taught us. And I'm very active in my church and I'm on the Tri-Faith Initiative board uh, because I think it's important to have a world where the three Abrahamic faiths are equal and that we understand each other and learn from each other and value the breadth of information and uh, faith that we bring to this world. I'm wondering if for you, there was a moment when you realized that working with children and families was something that you needed to do, if there was an epiphany of sorts? I kind of stumbled into being a job protective <laughs> service worker. But once I got that job and once I started doing that, I, I figured that that's what I needed to do. And that I have, um, I've learned so much and I've had so many great opportunities and great mentors and teachers through my career that it's just been it's been fun. I'm really glad where I'm at right now at Youth Emergency Services and, and watching the growth. You know, you use the word fun uh, to describe this kind of arc of your career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to focus on that. And, and, and well, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll end with, with that. Um, yet you also mentioned a, a data point, for example, that within 48 hours, 90% of, of youth that have uh, been sort of forced from their homes for some reason or other are approached by a human trafficker. I can't imagine the burden that you might feel emotionally and psychologically sort of each day. Um, and I wonder how you manage sort of self-care and being as upbeat as you are. So I have a fabulous team. The staff that work at Youth Emergency Services are dedicated, they're creative, and they're so smart. And they do much better than I would. And so I trust them. I also support them. Every month we do stories of hope and resilience about our youth, but we also hear about those heartbreaks and those sad situations because it's not all, we don't reach every young person. The trafficking situation is, is very challenging and there's been a lot of great work in the last five years that's been done here in Omaha through some studies, through the Women's Fund, the, the WCA, Women's Center for Advancement, and yes, have a project called Indigo, where we are working with victims of trafficking. So helping them to be stable, housed, and safe, and get those skills that they need too. So it fits really well with the work that we do. And then the WCA works with the older people, people older than 25. But, you know, you have to look at the impact. What impact are we making in this community? And that's one of my drivers, is what impacts are we making every day and what connections are we making for these young people? Yes doesn't say we do everything. We connect them to critically needed resources. 
So we partner with everybody and figure out how to match these youth with all the services that they need and make sure that it's individualized for them. You asked what I do for self-care. I am, um, I attend church on a regular basis. I participate in church and I meditate. I just started meditating in the last year and uh, that's been surprisingly helpful. <laughs> it's a, I have to, I have to, uh, set aside a time to do it, but I've been meditating. I also exercise and I have a very supportive husband and a supportive family and friends. And you just have to use all those resources and know that you're making a difference. And that's the thing with the youth. You don't know if you plant the seed now, that's what I tell them sometimes when they, a youth leaves too soon. Well, you planted the seed last week. We did a staff meeting and we do stories of hope and resilience. Two were of youth who were, had left our program and who called back to tell us how well they were doing and to keep in touch with that case manager. And, the, and one of them said, that kid, when he left, I didn't think he was gonna make it. <laughs> I said, well, maybe they listened to what you said after all. bio mentions that you were president of the Omaha Nebraska Business and Professional Women's Organization. <laughs> and uh, it speaks to your advocacy around improving the conditions of women in the workplace, not least uh, what we know about um, the gender pay disparity and other issues of, of bias, uh, gender bias. Tell us a little bit more about your activism in, in terms of uh, gender equity. I think it's very important that since BPW went away, I haven't done as much with that, but it's important that women's voices are heard in the workplace and everywhere. And I think it's important to support other groups that help raise women and girls. Have you sensed that it's been important that you have been a role model as clearly a leader in, in many aspects of your life and career, that you're role modeling what is possible? Well, thank you. 
I haven't thought about that, but I learned from my mom, you show up, you do a good job, and, and other people may be watching, and you're teaching people. I certainly had great role models when I worked at different jobs, and that's been important to me. And so if I can give back to somebody because somebody gave back to me, I'll be glad to do it. Megan Malik is, is just wonderful. She called me and she said she was leaving. Um, she wanted to tell me personally before an email that she was leaving the Women's Fund and going to OIC. And she said, you were a mentor for me for all these years. And I said, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> you just don't know. Those young people are watching. You're largely, I'm, I'm sure you get taxpayer dollar grants, that kind of thing. We get federal grants. and Federal grants. We got a city grant this year. Yep. But you are, if I'm correct, you're a private nonprofit entity. Right. Well, and we are amazingly blessed in Omaha. The philanthropic community is beyond any other community that I hear about. There are so many things that they pay for that, or they match. Today we were on a call about housing for uh, the state, and there's philanthropic dollars that will be available for $5 million. And that's just that pot. Now there's other pots of money right. from philanthropic dollars. It's amazing what foundations do to support people here in Omaha. And not just foundations. Youth Emergency Services did really well on Omaha Gives. There's a thousand agencies, and we're little. And we were number 11 in terms of donors. We like those $10, $15, $25 donors. And maybe next year they'll give us $50. And maybe next year they'll give us $100. But we like those. So one of the things I didn't say is that people could check our website for more information. If they know a young person, our application's on the website. They could help a young person apply. So Mary, let me ask you, if anybody wanted to be more involved to find out more, or even to um, help a youth that they thought was in trauma and in need, or if there is youth tuning in or listening that understands that they're, they're in a traumatic situation and need help, how can people find you? Our website, yesomaha.org, for Youth Emergency Services, has lots of good information, and there's a uh, tab on volunteering, Right now, we're not accepting very many volunteers because of COVID, and we people can do an application, they can read all about our services, and they can donate online. We are serving as many youth as we can right now through COVID, and we are having some increased expenses and some lost revenue. So if people can help us, we would sure appreciate it. But if you want to learn more about what we do, that's where you go to. And there's, like you said, there's resources on the causes and effects of youth homelessness and some other connections to resources across the country. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for asking. My guest today has been Mary Fraser Mainz, Executive Director of Youth Emergency Services. Mary, thank you for joining in conversation today. Thank you so much, Stuart. This was delightful. I appreciate you listening to me talk about youth emergency services.
whenever they do a what's the most interesting thing on your desk or that you can see, I, somebody said, you've got an Emmy. I said, well, yes, Ray does, but it's right here. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.